You are listening to Open Science Talk, the podcast about open science. My name is uh, Per Pipinaspos, and I'm joined today by a man with a big smile on his face. He has just been uh, nominated and created an honorary doctor at UIT, the Arctic University of Norway. This happened less than 24 hours ago, um, and I'll read aloud uh, something in Latin for the first time in this podcast history, just to put you in the right mood. Quod Felix Fortunatum Faustumque sit, anno bis millesimo, vicesimo secundo, calendis septembris, abhora secunda pomeridiana, usque ni fallor in mediam fere noctem, virum illustrissimum doctissimumque, professorem nempe franco-gallicae linguae in studiorum universitate quae luduni batavorum floret, et principem editorum diarii academici quod olim lingua nunc autem glossa est, et ducem fortissimum projecti vel ut itadicam belli europaei plan est dicti, praesertim singularibus in literaturam academicam liberi accessus adamantalis via divulgandam meritis notum. Dominum scilicet Johannem Rorik, Coripaii huiusque universitatis, doctorem honoris causa, idque merito creaverunt, atque celebrarunt. Congratulations, Johan. Thank you. And welcome to the podcast. Very how, happy to be here. How was your last day? It was wonderful, really. I mean, we had uh, uh, a full day of uh, of events and uh, ceremony and uh, uh, very nice dinners and uh, very pleasant company. So um, the crown prince was was here to uh, for the celebration. So it's very interesting to see the royal family taking such a great interest in. Uh, academic life uh, and uh, and research, so that's uh, yeah. It was it was quite wonderful, really. Yes, and you're an honorary doctor now at UIT, uh, and I heard the the uh, the vice rector yesterday say that it was because of two things. One was in your your eminent work as a as a linguist, um, and the other was for your eminent work in terms of open access. And um, you could start first with your, your, you're actually, you have a linguist background. So if you go back to the Latin again, um, Professor Franco-Gallicae Linguae, you're actually a professor of French linguistics. And just, could you just mention, how did you come from that background onto a, open access uh, field. Yeah, yes, actually, um, 
it's it's true that I do uh, French linguistics, so that's my focus. But in fact, it's it's a little bit broader. I um, I work uh, also on Romance linguistics and Germanic linguistics and the small differences, the smaller or the greater differences between the two uh, types of languages. So that is one thing. And I do that from a perspective of theoretical linguistics. So I, I work mainly in syntax and in the relationship between syntax and semantics from a generative linguistics perspective, a Chomsky perspective. And so it's, it's very much this general linguistics perspective that, that, that informs my work on, on, on Romance and, and Germanic. And in um, uh, 1999, I became uh, the, uh, the executive editor of the journal Lingua. This is actually a very, um, a bit of a sad uh, context. Um, in 1998, uh, until 1998, a, a good friend of mine, a colleague at Leiden University, where I worked since 1993, uh, unexpectedly died of renal cancer. And he asked me before he died, because that was still at the way of doing things at the time, sort of dynastic succession at journals. And he asked me before he died to take over the, the journal, which, of course, was something that I felt honor bound to do. <laughs> Uh, so, so I took over, but of course, uh, and uh, in the beginning, um, in the beginning, of course, I was just an editor. And but one of the, one of the things that struck me at the time is that the relationship between um, the publisher and the, the the editors at the time was much, but was very much one of a kind of a gentleman's agreement. The, I had a contract of one page with them, and you know they would say we have this many subscriptions and uh, here is uh, here is your fee for that and it was all very you know very gentlemanly <laughs> so to speak they took me out once a year for dinner and all of that changed very quickly actually in the next 10 years uh, it became a very transactional relationship with uh, them uh, with the publisher in this case uh, of the VM uh, becoming much more and more demanding on, on how I spent my time and what the targets were and uh, were meddling into uh, how uh, associate editors uh, w were were selected, and then of course there was a serials crisis, which came to the fore in the late two thousands. Yeah, the serials crisis. Could you just explain yeah. in case people don't know? Yeah. So the serials crisis is uh, the crisis that that people started to realize in in the course of that period that subscription prices had risen much more than inflation or than library budget could could afford. So basically, you know, publishing houses were trying to take advantage of, 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 of universities and university budgets. Um, and, and, and that became really an issue around that crystallized around 2010 with uh, the, the Elsevier boycott uh, organized by, by Tim Gowers and others boycott that said, look, don't don't review, don't publish in Elsevier anymore, in Elsevier journals anymore, because they're exploitative of the academic community. And that got me thinking because, you know, I mean, a number of people started telling me we don't want to review for you anymore because you are, you know, you are working for the enemy, basically. And, and, and that really got me thinking because, I mean, if you start losing good reviewers because they, they tell you, look, I don't want to review for Elsevier anymore out of principle, you do wonder whether you are not uh, collaborating with the enemy, <laughs> so to speak. So I started exploring other options. So that was about the time that was also got into contact with a number of uh, open access uh, uh, activists, so to speak. Uh, um, yeah, you and, came in uh, contact with with activists, but also people who were able to 
do things, make things happen themselves. So, so how how did you make this famous transition uh, from Lingua and where you you left Elsevier collectively, uh, together with all your yes. editors? Yes. Yes. So, so my so my, the first the first stage was 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 getting acquainted with open access, and I, I was fortunate enough to meet some people who were really able to to tell me about that, and I I decided, of course. Keep, to, to keep this quiet and to, to prepare a transition, um, especially when uh, at the time when, when Elsevier started telling me things like, you should have an, uh, an editor from, from Asia. And then I said, okay, an editor from Asia. And that, what, they, what they actually meant was China, because they were selling at the time a lot of subscriptions there. So they wanted an editor on the board of Lingua that was from China. But at the time, um, there were very few people in in my field or in the field that Lingua was dedicated to that were actually that I could have even put on the board. So I was very proud at one point to have found someone that was the what I would consider the the perfect Pacific Rim candidate. <laughs> you know, I mean somebody uh, who was from China, uh, or no, somebody with a Chinese background who was from Korea and who was actually working at Simon Fraser in Canada. So. More Pacific Rim than that, and more more all round Asian than that. <laughs> you know, it, you you couldn't imagine it. And they weren't satisfied. They said, next time you will have to do better. Oh. And so there was this tug of war. You know, I mean, where before I was my own person, and uh, you know, and the team could decide themselves who they took on board. Suddenly they started meddling in affairs that I thought were proper to the running of the intellectual content of the journal, and I wasn't pleased at all. And I. I, since I had been with them for like 10 years, I could see where this was going because this was, a, this was a constant narrowing of the conditions under which you had to work. Like I said, I started with a contract of one page. I ended up at the end of, at the end of my tenure with them with a 27 pages contract in which they stipulated that all the correspondence that I had with authors and reviewers was their property, that all the authors that I had painstakingly put into the system, so about 3,000 authors and reviewers' names, those names, that, that list belonged to them. <laughs> so there was clearly this conflict in who's who has responsibility for what and so that got me thinking about and together also with my open access friends about what the proper structure of a journal should be and so our idea was well the proper structure of a journal should be that you know every intellectual decision and that includes governance of the journal and ownership of the journal as a title and so the way the journal is run that that should be in the hands of the academic community and that the publisher really is just the printer you know, I mean, they can, they deliver services, certainly. They, they make sure that the articles look good. They make sure that the journal is marketed and they can ask a price for those services. That's not a problem. But we are in control, not the, not the publisher. That was my idea of what the journal should look like. And so slowly I, convinced, I started convincing the members of my editorial team and board of that. And I said, look, if, if I find the money <laughs> to do the transition, uh, will you follow me? And everybody said, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, we know this is for, the good, for a good cause and we trust you. Um, and it is true that the fact that I had done this for a long time, had built, you know, I had built up some credit in the community by doing this. If you do this for 10 years and, you know, people are not too angry at you and they think you do a good job, you get some credit. 
uh, and I, I think that credit counted for a lot. Um, so that they knew that this was not some harebrained scheme that Johan <laughs> devised on a Sunday morning because, you know, he, he was angry <laughs> at, uh, at something that happened with Elsevier. No, they, they knew that this was thought out. And then uh, this was, there was a string of, 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 of serendipitous um, uh, moments. Uh, in fact, I mean, uh, in 2000, around 2014, um, Elsevier and the... Uh, the, the Association of Dutch Universities were uh, negotiating a new contract and um, uh, I was there with my project uh, and uh, we got into contact with the boss, the then boss of the, the, the association who was very, a very dynamic, forward-looking uh, person. And they said, okay, we'll, we'll give you some money for the transition and, uh, you know, you, you just do it. And I said, okay, that's nice to have money for the transition, but I also need a long-term solution. And that's when I met Martin Eve of the Open Library of Humanities, who have a consortial uh, library model, which basically means that every library that they uh, that is a member of the Open Library of Humanities gives a relatively small amount of money, something between 700 and 2,000 uh, euros uh, a year. Uh, and they have uh, like 300 libraries doing that. And with that money, they keep alive uh, they pay for the costs of about 30 uh, academic journals in uh, in the humanities. And Martin offered me that Lingua, uh, that Loplosa, the, 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 new, the new journal that we founded after leaving Lingua, would then be a part of the Open Library of Humanities once the money of the, for the transition ran out. So I had both things uh, at that time. I had money for the transition, which was needed because you need to prepare things and you need to convince people. And we also wanted to get along some other journals because there were some other journals there wanted to flip alongside with us so that on the one hand and we had a long-term solution in the sense that of course if you're an editor of a journal with a long uh, history then you want that, that journal to go on for the for the next uh, uh, for the next uh, foreseeable future so Lingua was a journal that had been founded in 1949 uh, by two professors one at Leiden one at Amsterdam so it had a venerable history <laughs> in the field. And you, you know, when you make that decision, uh, you don't take it lightly. You want that journal to continue. So um, we then um, we then consulted some, with that transition money, we consulted some lawyers because, of course, you know, you don't want to do this without proper uh, uh, legal legal advice. And they advised us to, to first, uh, to not you know, go head first into a transition, but to propose Elsevier first to renegotiate the uh, terms of the contract, which is what we did. We, off we, we offered Elsevier to work under different conditions to make the journal open access, to give us the title, and uh, to hand over the title to uh, work with reasonable uh, article processing fees of about four or 500 uh, euros. And of course, in the people at Elsevier could not believe what they were hearing. <laughs> yeah, because that yeah. was some years ago, right? That was mm -hmm. around 2014. 15, yeah. 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 So back then, article processing charges were coming. The, the yeah. term now known as gold open access. But I believe Open Library Humanities, they are more into the diamond open access. Yes, yes. So, so, that, 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 that is, that's why they have a very different model. Huh? Mm -hmm. At that time, Lingua was already a hybrid journal, so you could publish articles. Hybrid journal means that, you know, the journal has basically two sides. There's an open access side where articles are published for open access if you can pay for the fee and you pay them and you publish them behind the paywall 
if you cannot pay for the fee. So that that's how hybrid journals work. The model of the Open Library of Humanities was was completely different. They said they said to the libraries, look, you pay a fee, an, a flat fee annually, and in exchange for that, we we make sure that there are thirty journals that produce content and that is at the disposal of everybody. So that's co- that's a, that's a model known as, as as diamond open access because basically what happens is that the articles are free for the reader, and they're also uh, free to the author. So the author doesn't have to pay a fee because the fee and the costs uh, the, the the costs for the article are carried by the participating libraries in this case. So di- that is how that model is called diamond open access. Diamond open access is a model whereby uh, neither authors nor readers pay for accessing content. And of course, it's a very equitable model. I think one of the main advantages of, of Diamond Open Access is that it is, uh, first of all, uh, scholar-controlled uh, 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 and scholar-owned most of the time. Uh, secondly, that it is uh, equitable by design, as I call it. Namely, uh, everybody can publish there if the quality the scientific and scholarly quality of the article is is good enough, is deemed good enough by by the peers. That means that you don't need to have money to to, to publish as an author. You don't need to have money as an editor or as a publisher to to to, to uh, publish, of course. So, um, but it it means, for instance, that uh, authors from from uh, lower and middle income countries uh, who do not have access to funds for publication fees can. F- freely publish in the journal if their paper is deemed good enough. Whereas that is not the case in hybrid journals or in gold open access journals. Very often gold open access journals and hybrid journals charge fees between two and three thousand euros. I think the lowest fees these days is something like 1400. Uh, The highest fee is about uh, 10,000. And and these are Prices that are expensive already for uh, northern uh, northern uh, authors, I would say, or western authors, but certainly they're completely inaccessible for people of lower and middle income c- countries. And basically, I think what gold open access does is create a two-tier system between uh, researchers, namely researchers who can afford to pay and researchers who cannot afford to pay. What is even worse, I think, about the gold open access system is that it is that it is, it is it's a one-size-fits-all uh, approach, namely. There is one fee that is set uh, set for the entire world, which is very strange if you think about it, because absolutely there's uh, almost no service that works that way. If you or a product that works that way, if you look at uh, Coca-Cola or uh, flight tickets uh, or uh, even aspirin, you know those prices are differentiated the world over as a function of uh, local purchasing power. It's what really the prices are, what the market can bear. And here it's not what the market can bear; it's what the, it's what the publishing houses impose. Um, yeah. Yeah. Could I just ask? Market, whereas Diamond Open Access, Open Library Humanities, it seems out of this market thinking. Am I right there? It's yes, it's definitely out of the market thinking. It's uh, it's a way of uh, it's a way of publishing that is uh, that functions within the academic community. That is also something that I like about it. It is basically funded by the funding that universities receive. Uh, and so that operates outside of a market so to speak. Of course there is an there is a market aspect to it in the sense that uh, or even the Open Library of Humanities um, uh, hires specific services. 
for, for instance, services of copy editing and services of typesetting, so making the XML and the PDF of the article, is something that is, uh, that is farmed out. Uh, in the case of the Open Library of Humanities to a company in India called Silicon Chips who ask for a decent price for their services. I mean, they're certainly not, uh, they're certainly not the cheapest, but they deliver a very good quality service, I must say. Uh, for instance, linguistics articles are really difficult because, I mean, you know, we have all these different typefaces for phonetic symbols. We have phonetic symbols, semantic symbols, tables, graphs, uh, so, you know, if you can typeset a, a linguistics article, you can typeset uh, pretty much everything. And they do a remarkably good job. And Open Library of Humanities pays them, pays them a fee per article uh, for these services. But it is a contract. It is, I mean, we are in control of them. They are not in control of us. You see what I mean? Yeah. So in that sense, there is a participation in the market because there's certain services that you don't want to do yourself. But the, the entire control um, is, is within the academic community, which is something that I very much think is a way forward for, for academic publishing, which, as, as you know, is, is right now, uh, con for the most part, controlled by uh, the, the, the big five academic publishers who make tremendous profits on these article processing charges and on these subscriptions, which profits which they make on, on taxpayer money, which I don't think is right. Uh, as I've said before, I think uh, scholarly production and articles are a, a common good, a common good of mankind in the same way as, clean, as you have a right to clean water. The population has, has a right to the, 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 the knowledge that we as scientists produce. It's just a, a basic human right. <laughs> Well, we started out now, we're talking a lot about general linguistics, a very international research field. Uh, of course, there are practitioners of this, uh, researchers uh, spread all over the world. Um, so it's, it's big in one way, but in another sense, it's not as big as certain other disciplines uh, where you have like literally thousands of articles submitted to journals per week, right? So uh, do you have examples of this non-commercial diamond open access thinking, scholarly led, uh, scholarly owned, <laughs> uh, in other fields that are more like the big natural sciences. Yes, th there is one example actually. Uh, well, there's there's a few. There's I th I think there is a journal in, uh, but again, I mean it's it's perhaps also a smaller thing. I think in oceanography there is a, a journal. I'm not sure. I saw one. Uh, but but there is one great example I think which is the 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 example of SciPost. SciPost is a, is a diamond open access journal run by uh, Jean Sébastien Coe, uh, who is a professor of physics at the University of Amsterdam. I think they publish about six hundred articles a year, something like that. They they have you know great volume, and they really intend to be uh, the competitor of the the big uh, the big journals uh, in the in the sciences. Yes, I think we should have more of those, uh, definitely, uh, because indeed in Diamond Open Access is mostly in uh, relatively small fields, uh, from very very small to to moderately small, moderate, uh, medium. I think Glossizer Journal is a sort of mid mid level journal. I think a, a journal that publishes about 130 articles a year is a sort of a mid-level journal. But then, of course, indeed, you have these journals that publish hundreds or thousands of articles a year. Also in mathematics, there are a couple of examples. Huh? Journal, journal of Combinatorics, for instance, also publishes quite a number of articles a year. 
So, so these things are slowly starting, and I, I hope to see them flourish in the, in the next few years. Yeah, because what I was thinking is, you found you you actually were lucky. You found a place to land, so to speak, yeah. to, to go from Elsevier to to land to a platform that was exactly what you needed. And but I guess other editors in other fields, well, they are not in the humanities. So where to land? Do you have examples of, of platforms like this, or are these something? I think no. I think Cypost is a platform that that allows other fields to 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 flip as well, or to set up a journal. Of course, they 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 will need money, but this is something that we will uh, look at. I mean, we are, as you know, we are also uh, developing a, a project, or we are starting a project to reinforce diamond journals. So what we want to do is to create a, a, an international uh, capacity center that would uh, make sure that these journals become sustainable and that it becomes easier for journals to start, uh, also in terms of finances. Yeah, just for the audience who don't know you, uh, we're now moving on to your very recent uh, task as being the executive director of Coalition S, the, the, the coalition that is uh, known as uh, promoting Plan S. So you've been there uh, for the last two years, I think? Yeah, since, since 2019. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it will be three years, yeah. Yeah, so, so you're now you're sitting in that chair for quite some time, so I guess you've had uh, have uh, lots of experience already on how to try and and change the system because Plan S is trying to flip everything onto an open access reality. Yes, the, so the, 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 the single goal of Plan S is ac actually that all articles that are um, uh, that come out of research financed by the organizations that are members of, of Plan S and most of the time that, uh, that is funders who, who work with public money, that all publications coming out of that have to be published in open access in one way or another. So that means Gold open access when you pay for it uh, via transformative agreements when the libraries pay for it, uh, diamond open access or even uh, via repositories. So if you publish behind the paywall, then you will have to deposit a copy of the article in a repository. So this is, has simply become since 2021 a condition of the contracts that researchers conclude with the funders. So this is simply because of the sense of frustration by these funders back in 2018 that they didn't see a return on investment uh, for, for them. Because, of course, you know, these funders were put collectively, the funders that we have now collectively put about 35 billion euros into research with an output of a, about 150,000 uh, articles a year. And the frustration there is that even even today, only 55% of those articles are in open access. That has to be 100%. Has to be 100% because, of course, you know, uh, societal challenges, uh, Ebola, <laughs> uh, uh, COVID lately, also monkeypox virus. Uh, they don't want to go back to the publishers and, and, and sit on their knees and ask, will you please make that research uh, open access and then see it close down again six months later when the threat uh, has passed. No, all of that research has to be openly accessible. So that was a, a bold move, certainly a move that was not uh, welcomed, shall we say, by the, by the big publishers. Um, or only welcomed by the big publishers to the extent that they uh, were guaranteed money, uh, big, large amounts of money for it. So, so that was the one goal of Plan S, and that is also why I signed on. I thought, okay, this is this is this is a great initiative. 
uh, what I liked about the initiative is that it didn't think that there was a single silver bullet to get to 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 open access because open access is a field I think where there's a lot of utopian thinking I mean lots of people think that they have the one solution uh, for instance there are people who think we have to just stop concluding contracts with these big publishers and move to a completely different system the problem is you cannot do that overnight because researchers are human beings they they function with certain expectations and they have all been led to believe that they have to publish in the large prestige journals and this is a mentality change that you need to work on that needs time to change um, especially in these big fields that you're talking about the thousands of articles the the notion of prestige of a journal is extremely important and the notion of impact factor is completely uh, is, is also very important and this is something that needs change we need to slowly change the, the mentality and slowly convince the the, um, the the researchers that this is no longer what we're looking at that we don't want uh, researchers to publish in research uh, in, in high prestige journals and this was actually also a principle of uh, plan s plan s principle 10 says we don't care about prestige we care about the content uh, and also when we select people for grants that is what we look at we don't look at impact factors we are not interested in the impact factor of the journal that you publish in we're interested in what you think is important about your research uh, so please explain that to us. Uh, and I think those, so what I liked about it was the integrated approach. So not the approach to say, well, we, we reject commercial publishing, uh, but the, 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 the honest attempt to try to, com to, to, to convince commercial publishing to change tack. And by saying, for instance, well, we will no longer pay for hybrid journals because hybrid journals have not led to open access. So we reject, we will no longer allow our researchers to pay for articles in hybrid journals. So we will pay for articles in full open access journals because that contributes to a future of open access, even if those fees are expensive. And we acknowledge that those fees are expensive, but we want them to be transparent. So we want to understand what goes into the cost. We understand that publishing costs money, but publisher, please explain to us why it has to cost 3,000 euros. Where does your cost go? I think that's a fair, that's that's a fair way of approaching a commercial, um, a, a commercial actor, right? I mean, if uh, if you go to uh, to uh, to the hairdresser, I mean, in my case, of course, it's difficult. I never go to the hairdresser. But if you go to the hairdresser, you you get an itemized list of things that they do for you, right? I mean, there's, there's the shampoo, there's this, there's that. I mean, and you know what you pay for. Same when you go to service your car. You know that you pay for the windshield wipers and uh, the change of oil. And if you think that is too expensive, you can go you can go elsewhere. In the same way, we want the prices of high uh, of 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 uh, open access fees and and costs and prices to 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 be transparent so this is one of the things that i really liked about uh, planners the 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 very pragmatic approach of complementary policies so on the one hand commercial yes but please be transparent um you can publish in a subscription journal as well. That's not a problem. We do not prevent our authors to publish anywhere they want, but there are conditions. If you publish in a subscription journal and you choose to publish behind the paywall, well, then you, it's incumbent on you there also to make sure that the last version, the pre-final version of your article, the so-called author accepted manuscript, uh, that you keep rights on that, so-called CC BY. This is the rights retention strategy. And that then you put that author accepted manuscript copy in a repository that is openly accessible. 
so, so these and in the same way, of course, we were looking at diamond. We saw that diamond is an opportunity to for, for us to take back uh, um, to take back control of the of of of, of, of uh, academic publishing, and we we decided to to. Um, or at least some some funders uh, decided to launch plan a, a plan for a diamond action plan for uh, to federate diamond open access journals in Europe, and with the help of the European Community, who had uh, launched uh, 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 a call for a, for such a for such a plan for institutional what they called um, euphemistically uh, institutional publishing. Um, they launched a call and we wrote a project, uh, we meaning a number of actors in this, 23 organizations, uh, among which uh, 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 UIT, the Arctic University of Norway, uh, who, who were a member of this, this coalition that uh, wrote a plan for to, to, to look into Diamond Open Access and to see how it could be strengthened uh, further. So this project is now starting and, and this yes so now we have come full circle this yeah. is the project that now has uh, started with members of uh, UIT uh, on board uh, Jan Erik as you know Jan Erik Frans Volk uh, who, uh, who is on board and so I very much look forward to to seeing that project uh, uh, concurrently there's another project that will look at uh, uh, infrastructure for diamond open access that is led by Marco Bagia at the University of Göttingen the, uh, coalition is, is also a member of that project. Uh, so yes, I think we are for the first time seeing a, a regional movement uh, here. I mean, um, Europe uh, starting to make diamond open access a, a federated a federated unit, very much in the same way that this has already happened in South America, where you have Redalic uh, America and Cielo, the da uh, federated infrastructure for diamond open access uh, journals and. We hope in the long run to make a make this into a global movement, of course, so joining up with them and, and other actors in this space. And what then? What if Diamond Access becomes so big and such a success that everybody moves on to such platforms, as you did with uh, with the Lingua Glossa yeah, story? Yeah, then they I would say... They don't have to break new land. They just mm -hmm. do... Uh, form, they, they follow a, a certain protocol and then they're free, so to speak. Uh, what if everybody does that? So, is there any room for commercial publishing anymore, or will they have to shut down all of it? I don't think they will have to shut down. I think they will simply have to change their business model. Uh, I, uh, I mean, I think this will take a long time. I mean, I hope it will happen, and, but then I would say mission accomplished. You know, I can die a peaceful man. <laughs> but. Um, uh, I I think they 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 will survive in one one way or another because after all I mean there will still be ser publishing services uh, that are necessary. I mean let's not forget. I mean I I certainly do not underestimate the commercial publishers. They have a, a great amount of knowledge that we that we lack. Uh, uh, things like marketing, for instance. I mean we, this is not something that we do well in the academic community. I mean there's also typesetting and copy editing, but that is something that even the big publishers farm out to. Uh, uh, ancillary uh, uh, companies in, in India or in other countries. Um, but there is certainly a, a great deal of, of, of knowledge that we that we could use and might be willing to pay a, a fair price for if they if they can uh, if, if they can make that, that point. Uh, what I don't think we will pay a price for is the kind of uh, control and uh, privacy 
breaking uh, uh, searching services that they practice now on, on their readers. This is something that will definitely go into the charter for diamond open access that we do not pry, that we do not check what our authors are reading, uh, so to speak. Uh, so we definitely want to also not only make uh, uh, diamond publishing into a force to, to be reckoned with, but we also want to uh, put it on a different ethos. I mean, we are not there to, to exploit our readers uh, or to predict their behavior. Uh, we are there to serve the readers and to understand what, what they want and to make this into a communal enterprise. There is a saying, books and diamonds yeah. are forever. <laughs> so uh, yeah. could we move a little bit beyond the journal article Definitely. Uh, and, and look into what they call man monographs, um, anthologies and textbooks even? I mean, these are important scholarly works. Uh, how can they become more open? Yes, it's, it's definitely the case that books, uh, open access for books is lagging behind the articles. Uh, this is also, of course, because uh, a project like Planners has to have a, a focus. Uh, and so the first focus was on peer-reviewed articles. Um, it, it, is the, it is also the case that we have a principle, principle six, I believe, that said, look, we acknowledge that that trajectory for books will take a little bit longer. But last year we did come out with a statement because we had promised that we would come out with a statement that we had a sort of a, a roadmap for books. And the roadmap for books is, a, is, is, is again, it's a little bit longer, but the, the idea is there as well is that uh, books should ultimately be open access. And, uh, and there were, were a number of recommendations and principles, namely uh, there as well, that, namely that funders would be willing to pay for open access for books. And that, of course, devices have to put into place for that. Um, it is, was also acknowledged that there the license that would apply to books would not be purely CC BY as we do for articles, but that various uh, types of CC licenses would be would be possible. Uh, the reason for that has to do also with the the, the very different landscape for books. Books are mainly a mode of communication of the social sciences and humanities. Uh, books are not profitable at all. <laughs> uh, they are also published very often by, by smaller companies, smaller publishing houses that are sometimes very, very focused. I mean, for instance, you have publishing houses that only are only concerned with uh, African linguistics, for instance. You, you do see that, or only with linguistics general, like John Benjamin's. And that is true for many, many uh, 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 publishers in the, the, the in the humanities and these publishers for for whatever reason ha have not always understood the the consequences of the digital revolution and still think in terms of paper books so that has to change we know that we to be there are organizations that are working on that but it's going more slowly uh, so this is something that we need to accelerate at the same time you also see that some publishers have seen the light and uh, have understood for instance that uh, if they make a book, even a book in a niche subject in humanities, if, if they make that book open access, they reach a much wider audience worldwide. And the people who then see that open access version of the book want a paper copy because in humanities very often you, you know, the books contain uh, pictures, high quality pictures and graphs and, and, and all sorts of other material that people want to have on paper because because yeah a, a, a book is more convenient so what they what these publishers have seen is that in fact the, the open access the free open access copy drives the sale of uh, 
paper books. And of course, that's an opportunity because uh, that, that is something that we don't care about. I mean, that they, uh, that they charge a certain price for the paper book that they can do. The only thing that we as funders are interested in is that the book is available open access so that you don't have to buy it. If you want, you can still have full access to the content because you have a digital copy. So that is my ideal model for open access books, in fact, that you know publishers would see the light and say, look, we publish everything open access. We don't care. I mean, there will always be people who want books on paper. And let's make that our new publishing model. Um, so I do think there's opportunities there. I, I do think there's a long road to go. So there, again, we have uh, been very fortunate to have uh, uh, organizations like OAPEN and uh, DOAB, uh, Open Access for Books, where there's a number of people who are very much concerned about this and have a lot of expertise. And together with them, we have uh, applied for a, a project, uh, again with the EC, a project that will also start in beginning of 2023. The project is called Palomera. It's led by Niels Stern of OAPEN and Niels. Uh, so we are. Uh, that's a two-year project that will uh, formulate recommendations for all stakeholders to get books in open access. So recommendations for funders, for universities, for libraries. How can we get more books open access? And I think that's going to be an important project, um, bringing forward the idea that open access for books is also an absolute necessity. But again, it's, it's going to be slower, but then it also concerns a much smaller amount of, of, of digital content. Yeah. We return to where we started, yeah. general linguistics, uh, the study of grammatical structures or phonetics and things like that. You need to assemble data. Uh, I guess you linguists, you, you make Excel sheets and things like that yes. all the time. And um, that's also part, an important part in, in the broader open science thinking. So now, now we're moving away from the plan S um, to, to, to the broader picture of open science. Some people are concerned that these commercial publishers, they, they ask also kinds of supplementary material like data sets to be submitted to them. So perhaps they, they are behind paywall, whereas the article as such is in open access. So there are some uh, institutions uh, like here in uh, Tromsø, for instance, eight years ago, we launched something called Trolling, the Tromsø repository. Yes, excellent initiative. Yeah, so that's a, a, a repository for linguistic data sets and it's curated by, by people at the library. Um, so these uh, data sets, they get DOIs and they can then be, you know, you can cross-reference between the data sets at search uh, and, and, and any articles uh, or books even that are related to it and vice versa, so, so that you get the transparent uh, and, and fully open system. But as I said, the big publishers, they know what's happening and they try to... Yes, to I, 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 think, I think indeed we should be very careful. I mean, I think, um, I think this is something that universities should be more aware of and are not yet. Um, I hope that the, the, the current um, wave of rights retention st strategies or policies that is now starting, um, so uh, in, in Norway, uh, University of Stronger was the first to launch uh, a rights retention policy. I hope that the rights retention policy for articles will also extend to, to data, actually, because I think universities should be much more aware of what they are 
giving away or what their authors, what their employees are giving away. So there should be much more an awareness that don't give away the copyright on your articles, make them CC by, don't give away the copyright on your data. Uh, so I think that's 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 a realization that has to take place. That's again one of those mentality changes that we need to work on. I think uh, organizations like the um, uh, European University Association (EUA) could 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 and is helping a lot in that. They represent 800 universities in Europe. So I hope they will be able to convince their constituency that this is a, a move that is absolutely necessary in view of the publishers indeed taking ownership of data that again have been compiled with, with public money. Uh, I do think that that awareness of, of data is, is, is growing a lot. For instance, um, if you, even if I look at my own journal, I mean, we also publish uh, articles in experimental linguistics. Uh, uh, five years ago, uh, we did not have a data policy. Right now, you know, because I also hired some younger editors, associate editors, they told me, look, we have to have a data policy, and that data policy is not, should not be optional, it should be mandatory. <laughs> uh, and so, so we did that, we said, look, I mean, if you submit an article on experimental linguistics with us, we want to see, we want to see your data. They have to be in an appendix, we can upload them for you and give a dependent DOI, or you can host them yourself on osf.io and uh, have them there. But there has to be a link. We want to see them. And we want to uh, make sure that you have an ethics, uh, that you ha in terms of ethics as well, you want to have a, a, an ethics declaration from your university that if human subjects are involved, you know, that these, these protocols have been respected. So all of a sudden, you know, even in a few years at a, at a relatively small journal like ours, you see, you see that that change has happened, and there's much more this 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 idea of okay, we have to make sure that the data are available, not only available on request, which was the mode of functioning until a few years ago, and where people would say data are available upon reasonable request. No, not, no more unreasonable request. They have to be downloadable alongside the article, <laughs> and that's where we are now. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing. So, so things are changing, and there is much more of an awareness of of authors that, yes, they have to keep their copyright to their article, but also the copyright and uh, the ownership of, of of the data, while at the same time making them available to the rest of the world, so that people can see if the work is reproducible, and can also reuse it uh, if they uh, or uh, uh, duplicate the research uh, when they. Uh, as they want. Yeah, absolutely important. Final question then, Johan. Are you an optimist? <laughs> I'm not by nature an optimist, but I am an optimist when it comes to <laughs> open access. I really think it is possible to move to a better world. I mean, maybe it's my, uh, maybe it's the fact that I was lucky with the journal. Um, but I think, you know, very often it's like with everything you do, you know, it's so many, so much, it's, it's, there's a part of luck in what you do and there's a part of uh, planning. And sometimes the two come together and then you are extremely lucky. <laughs> um, so I think my experience with, um, with, with Glossa made me uh, an optimist. I think also my work with, uh, with Coalition S, it makes, makes me an optimist because I, I see that things are changing. 
I do think that things that can can change for the better, but we of course all have to do all have to do our part. Uh, but yes, I, I I do think that things are changing for the for the better. But they will only change for the better if if as academics we we take our responsibility and we reflect on these things and do, are not just preoccupied with the numbers of publications that we uh, produce and uh, and the impact factors and that we just blindly go down that alley of of numbers. Uh, but reflect on our. On, on our role in society and uh, reflect on the fact that if we publish an article, that article has to be available to every person on the planet because you never know which person on that planet will have an idea building on your article. You, you don't know that and that's why it has to be open access. It's in your own interest as a scientist because you will be cited more and it's in the interest of all the problems that we are having in front of us that need solving. And so we need the collective intelligence, the hive mind of the planet <laughs> to do that. That's, I, I very much believe in that. Yeah. With that, I thank you so much for coming to the pro program, Johan. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure. Open Science Talk is produced by the University Library of UIT, the Arctic University of Norway. Thanks for listening. Thank you.